The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Oh, and we have Marion Harper to read our scripture today. Thanks, Marion. Today is from Mark 1, 35 through 38, and chapter 2, 1 through 12. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Marion, for reading that scripture for us this morning. Uh, hey, everybody. It's good to be back. I know we've, we've, uh, we've all been working through some things <laughs> for the last year or so. It is good to be back uh, together. I'm thankful, thankful for what the Lord has been doing. Okay, this passage of scripture. I really like this passage of scripture. I know we're supposed to love everything in the Bible, and I think I do, but I like this passage. I like it a lot. I like these guys. I like, because you can, you can picture them, right? This is a, I've been to Capernaum. It's a, it's a small town now. It was a small town then. Uh, it's on the, what would be the, the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And, and in this town, there are some guys who have a friend who can't walk. And they know that Jesus is in town, and so they come up with an idea. And if, you, if you've ever been in the presence, and, and we all have, we've been in the presence of guys who hatched a plan, <laughs> you know, crazy things happen, right? Crazy things happen. 
And this is a story like that, where they got together and they said, you know what we should do? We should take you to Jesus because he, he heals. Let's do that. And then they were undeterred. And so I love this. I love this passage. I'm excited about getting into it and unpacking it here. Um, what I'm going to do, just so you know kind of the, the track that I'm going to be on this morning, is I'm going to unfold from this passage six, don't be worried, but I'm going to do six principles for reaching out. Because reaching out is a part of our mission as a church. It's something that we value, uh, that we would be people who would always be inviting people in and welcoming people in. And what I want to do is I want to look at this passage and I want to ask the question, what does it mean to reach out? Because that's what's happening here. You have people who are bringing somebody to Jesus. And so the questions are, what does it mean to reach out? What does it mean to bring people to Jesus? What role does Jesus play when we do that? And so I want to look at this passage as a way to get to that, get to those questions. And, and it's, a, it's a text that has really captivated my imagination since I was a little kid, this, this story. And, and there's not a lot like it, right, of, of friends being a champion for their buddy, a roof gets torn out. And it's just, it's a little bit preposterous even. And so I'm looking forward to unpacking this uh, by drawing out these six principles of what does it look like? What are we to do? What does Jesus do? And so we'll just jump right in with the first one. And that is this, we must befriend people who need the touch of Jesus. That's something we talk about all the time here is that we need to be people who are befriending those who need the touch of Jesus. It's such an obvious part of this passage that we might miss it if we didn't name it. But what happens here is this paralytic in the story, he has people in his life. He has people in his life who love him. And they love him so much that they want to see him whole. And so they're champions for him. And that's really the point, is... is is outreach is the business of being somebody's champion. We're called to love people in such a way that we're, we're passionate about bringing them to Jesus. And I know that comes with fear. We, we, we wonder, am I going to get laughed out of the room? Am I going to uh, be persecuted? Am I going to be rebuffed? And we need to ask the Lord to help us overcome our fear and ask him for the opportunity instead to, to, to come alongside people who need the touch of Jesus. So first, we must befriend people who need the touch of Jesus. Second, I told you these were going to go quickly. Second, now is as good a time as any to do this. There's no such thing as an inopportune time to come to Jesus. This miracle happened on a particularly busy day for Jesus, it was a politically important day for Jesus because people were watching him and they were trying to figure out where to put him uh, in terms of their own ideology. And, and so it's an important day. And, and Luke, uh, in his gospel, he talks about this as well. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this story and they all give some different details. But when you look at those three gospels, here's some of the details that emerge. The first we see is that Jesus was spending the day teaching. The second is that Pharisees and teachers of the law were present to hear him teach and really to scrutinize his teaching. And third, and you see this in Luke's gospel, is that people had traveled from surrounding regions to get there. 
So people had come from distances. So this was a, it almost was unfolding like a pop-up conference, right? And you have Jesus in this passage doing something that he was passionate about. And what he was doing is he was teaching people about his father. And there were important guests in the room, religious leaders. Now think about this. A lot of times when we read the gospel and we have Jesus and religious leaders in a room together, we know this is confrontation material, right? This is, things are not going to really go well here. But think about it this way too. It's an important strategic moment for Jesus because if the religious leaders would hear and receive his teaching, they could then leverage the voice that they have for the spread of the gospel to occur among their people. And so, and so he's doing something he's passionate about, and there are important people there. And it wasn't just local leaders. Luke 9 tells us that there were leaders from every village in Galilee and Judea and from around Jerusalem. This was a high-powered day. And so what the paralytic's friends did, in a sense, was bad form, right? They interrupted. They barged in. They, they, it would be as if somebody came in those doors right over there and demanded my attention right now, right? I should have had somebody do that. Joe, would you go stand over there and just, just kidding. Nope, I'm kidding. Don't do it. He would. But they interrupted a great teacher teaching a great crowd with influential guests. They could have waited until Jesus was done. They really could have. He wasn't dying. He was just paralytic. But instead, what did they do? They barged in. They tore a hole in someone else's roof, not even their own roof, somebody else's roof. And they asked Jesus for a miracle now, right now. I love little details that pop up in scripture. Uh, the Bible is written in thrift, uh, so there are not a lot of rabbit trails or uh, run-on sentences except in Paul's writing, which Peter said was hard to understand. Um, but scripture is written in thrift, and in this passage, there's just a, a little turn of a phrase that's used that will challenge certain paradigms you may have about Jesus if you've been reading the Bible your whole life. And I'm going to read it to you. It's from chapter 2, verse 1, and it says this. It was reported that Jesus was at home. Wait, Jesus didn't have a home. Birds have nests, foxes have den, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus didn't have, apparently, guess what? He did have a home. And you know where that home was? It, was? it was Peter's house. It was where Peter's mother-in-law actually lived. That Jesus lived in Capernaum with Peter and his extended family. That's what's happening. It's fascinating because these, these men with their paralytic friend are tearing a hole in Peter's roof. And you know, Peter was a guy who had a thoughts on stuff like that, right? But that's what's happening. They're, they're, they're tearing a hole. You can kind of picture Jesus there teaching and just things start to fall, right? And people are kind of looking up and before long there's a face just kind of looking down and the hole gets bigger and down comes this paralytic on a mat. And when you look at how Jesus responded, it's really astonishing. He didn't rebuke them. 
He didn't say, can't, can't you guys see this is really, really bad timing? He didn't even politely tell them to wait until he was done either. In fact, Jesus doesn't regard what's happening here as an interruption at all. He sees it as an opportunity to actually prove his point, to prove who he was through what he was teaching, that he is the one who is sent to heal and to forgive a desperately broken world. It took Moxie for these four friends to interrupt this meeting. It's something that most of us in this room just wouldn't dream of doing. Some of us get nervous because we feel like we might be married to somebody who might and part of the marriage deal is to prevent that from happening, right? But it's, it's, what's happening here is something that most of us wouldn't do because we, it would be bad form. You can just wait. And the bottom line is, for us, we have reasons. We have reasons why we're reluctant to get involved, why we're reluctant to reach out. And one of the common reasons that we're reluctant is that we're waiting for the right time. And the question that this passage presents to us is, why isn't now the right time? There's no such thing as in an opportune time to bring somebody to Jesus, which brings us to the third principle, and that is this. An obstacle is not the same thing as a failure. An obstacle isn't the same thing as a failure. There were many obstacles in the way of these men getting their friend to Jesus, one of them being that they had to carry the guy. But although the obstacles didn't make bringing their friend to Jesus impossible, it did make it complicated. It was complicated. But here's what they knew. They knew that Jesus was in town. They knew that Jesus had a reputation for being somebody who could miraculously heal people. And they knew that they had a friend who needed healing. And it would have to be a miracle. And so the initial plan had to have been pretty simple, right? Let's just... Let's bring our friend to Jesus. He might heal him. And it turned out to be more complicated than that. But it wasn't impossible. It's was just complicated. G.K. Chesterton said Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Sometimes following Jesus is complicated. Sometimes the crowds are bigger than you thought they would be, and sometimes you have to go in through the roof. But meeting an obstacle is not the same thing as failing, and so sometimes what it means is the obstacle is something God puts in our path to say, think. You need to think. If there's something that God is calling you to, why would he permit obstacles to be in the way? Well, sometimes the reason... Getting started can be difficult is because God wants our hearts to be desperate. He wants us to say, God, help me. Lord, help me with this. I can't do this on my own. And that desperation leads to prayer, which turns our faces Godward. And prayer strengthens us to concentrate on how to overcome the obstacles when we, we, we face. And when we concentrate on the obstacles we have to overcome, what we come away with is an education. See, God uses obstacles to set a chain reaction in motion that leads us to coming away with an education about the problem that we're facing. 
And so we not only reach out, but we become smart about reaching out. And so it's good to run into obstacles because God uses them to stretch us. And he uses them to give us deeper insight into the ministry to which he has called us. So an obstacle is not the same thing as a failure. Number four, I love this one. Jesus may touch one person as a response to the faith of another person. So if you have people you pray for, your faith may prompt Jesus to touch another person. Jesus may touch one person as a response to the faith of another. In verse 5, Mark writes about the friends who lowered the man to Jesus, and he says this. He says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Jesus healed the paralytic in response to the faith of his friends. Now, we don't know what the paralytic's involvement was in this. We don't know if he said anything. We don't know if he was just one of the guys, if he even resisted. We don't, we don't know. Probably didn't because he kind of went along with a complicated plan, right? But we may fear that our outreach will be in vain if the one that we're reaching out to is somebody who just doesn't understand what we're trying to do or maybe even resents what we're trying to do, that can be a stopper for us when we feel like reaching out in the love of Christ, what if the person I'm reaching out to resents it or just doesn't understand it or understands it wrongly or, you know, we wonder, the, am I wasting my time? Will God move in their life if they don't have faith? But what we see here is sometimes he'll move in their life because you have faith. And isn't this the story of the gospel anyway, right? God's mercy extended to one because of the work of another. This is what the gospel is. God's mercy extended to us because of Christ's work on our behalf. Which then leads us to point number five. Because God knows what is needed more than we do, because God knows what's needed more than we do, he will do more through our outreach than we imagine. Ephesians 2.20 says God, will, God exceedingly does, does exceedingly more than all that we ask or imagine. It's because when we ask God to do things, we ask him from our earthbound perspective that is limited and it's, it's got its issues, but he knows what we mean perfectly. Right, And so because God knows what's needed more than we do, he will do more through our outreach than we imagine. So in this scenario, the paralytic's body is broken. He can't walk. And so his friends believed that Jesus could make him walk. But notice how Jesus responds. The first thing he says is, your sins are forgiven you. What's this about? Well, here's a guy whose body is paralyzed, who lives on a mat... And the first thing Jesus says is your sins are forgiven. Why? Because Jesus understood that what this man needed more than anything else 
was to be made whole spiritually. Jesus understood what this man needed more than anybody else did, more than even his friends did. His body was paralyzed, but his soul was dead in sin. And so that's one of the great encouragements from this text, is though we may recognize somebody's need, one of the great encouragements from this passage is that Jesus knows more about what is needed than we ever could. And so these friends of the paralytic, they knew their friend was paralyzed. They knew that Jesus was known to heal. But Jesus knew not only what he needed, but he knew what everyone there needed. And that was reconciliation with God. And that's what he's about in this moment. This is a much greater need than physical healing. The friends of the paralytic wanted to see their friend restored. But Jesus knew that what that really entailed, him being restored, was a spiritual thing more than it was a physical thing. And it was more than what even his friends imagined. Now, notice, however, that Jesus also did heal him. So it's not like Jesus just did a bait and switch and said, I know you want to be whole. I'm going to make you spiritually whole. And that's going to just have to be enough for you. No, he, he does respond to the physical need. He heals the man. And it makes a difference in his life. And it makes a difference in other people's lives. But he responds to the deeper needs too. And so as we pray, Lord, if you're going to use me to reach out, I understand that I see part of, part of what people need, but you see the whole thing. Pray that God might use you to help meet all the needs that a person has, the needs that you see, but also the needs that you don't see, but he does see. And pray that through your outreach in his name, he might not only meet the needs that you see, but also the ones you don't. And that brings us finally to point number six. And that is, Jesus often ministers not just to those that we bring, but to the watching world as well when we do it. So everybody in this story is affected when Jesus heals and forgives the paralytic. It becomes a moment, a test, right? Where Jesus says, which is harder? To forgive somebody's sins or to say, pick up your mat and walk? And he's checkmated everybody, right? Because they're like, well, they're... They're, they're both out there. Um, but one of them has like empirical, incontrovertible evidence when it happens that we'll have to then reckon with because it won't make sense if he just gets up and walks, but he does. Everybody is affected when Jesus healed and forgave the paralytics. The religious leaders, they believed that Jesus was blaspheming for forgiving sins and they said only God could do that. Others were filled with awe in his presence, but Jesus used this healing to raise the question of who he was to everybody who was watching. And who was he? Who is he? He's God. He's God. He has the one who has authority to mend broken bodies and to forgive sin. He does have the authority to forgive sin, and he has the power to heal the body, and it left some people offended. But it left others really thinking, thinking hard about who Jesus really is. And they leave saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. 
Some were so moved that they began to praise God for what Jesus had done. You know, this is one of the ways that Jesus continues to use outreach still. When we come along side somebody and love them well, often there will be other people watching. People notice mercy. People notice kindness. Sometimes it's family members. Sometimes it's friends. Sometimes it's curious neighbors or coworkers who will want to know why we're doing what it is that we're doing. Sometimes coworkers will notice your kindness towards somebody that drives everybody else up a wall. And they will just wonder, why are you extending dignity? When our response is that we're doing it in the name of Jesus, which sometimes is just that plain, right? We just tell people, well, I'm doing this because I want to love like Jesus does. Other times, maybe we're not that overt in how we say that, but it's clear that this is an extension of our faith in Christ. When we do that, it leads people to want to know who this Jesus is. That's where this passage gets a little bit meta for us. Because why are those friends and that paralytic there in the first place? It's because Jesus had done other healings. Jesus had done other things, and it had reached them. And they had said, we want in on that. We don't know what to think about it, but we want in on it. By the grace and power of Jesus, your attempts at outreach may be the door or the roof through which some turn to him, not just for the healing of their bodies, but for their souls too. And we know this because what unfolds in this passage has nothing to do with the scheme drawn up by the friends of the paralytic. It has everything to do with Jesus doing what he wants. So I hope you see the simplicity and the grandeur of these six principles. You want me to read them again? I'll read them again very quickly. We must befriend people who need the touch of Jesus. That's the first one. Now is as good a time as any to begin. That's the second one. An obstacle is not the same thing as a failure. That's the third. Fourth, Jesus may touch one person's life as a response to the faith of another person. Five, because God knows what is needed more than we do, he will do more through our outreach than we imagine. And then six, Jesus often ministers not just to those we bring, but to the watching world as well. Simplicity and grandeur. Outreach is simple. It's simply having people in your life who need the touch of Jesus and bringing them through your words and your actions and your prayers to Jesus. But the grandeur, the grandeur of this is how Jesus meets the needs that we see, but then also meets needs that we don't see not just in the lives of those we've carried, but very often in the lives of many others who are watching, even though we didn't know it. Very often, he meets needs and does works in our own lives as we're in the process of doing this. Jesus doesn't restore people because we love them. He restores people because he loves them. And he is the ultimate champion. And so he's called us to serve as his hands and feet and to share in his love for the broken by becoming champions for them too. 
And don't you think there's something in that call that might heal a big part of us as well? Let me pray. Lord, as these children come back in here and as we move and transition now to the communion table, Lord, I ask that you would continue to help us to love well and to overcome the fear of being Christians publicly. Help us to do that in ways that are gracious and not obnoxious, in ways that are humble and not arrogant, in ways that are kind and not condescending. Uh, Lord, would you shape us into people who, um, when people associate our faith with us, uh, there's a nobility and a respect that goes with it through because of the ways that we carry ourselves and not a, not a, uh, um, a rush to judgment. Um, and Lord, we ask that you would continue to do exceedingly more than all that we ask or think. We thank you that this is how you operate. Uh, give us then faith. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we are going to come to the communion table now. And as a way of framing our hearts for that, we're going to read a confession of faith together. This is from the Heidelberg Catechism. Question number one. Let's read this together. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen.